good to uh, be here this morning. We have uh, services Saturday night. Um, we were running a synagogue a few years ago, up until about uh, December, and uh, they decided to double our rent. And so we said to them, uh, sorry, we're going to not be able to do that. And the Lord provided a church right around the corner, and uh, they said, uh, well, we, we have the building Sunday mornings. You can have it Sunday afternoon or Saturday night. We said, we'll take Saturday night, and the Lord's been blessing then. So give me an, uh, an opportunity to be at uh, other churches. Now, I, I do have a bone to pick with uh, Steve because he told me he got a picture of me off the Internet, but he didn't tell me where he got the picture, and I opened up today, and it's my ma- uh, um, Cornerstone Seminary picture. I'm a professor at the Cornerstone seminary this picture is like six or seven years old i don't look like that anymore at least i don't dress like that anymore a tie and a coat and i looked at that i'm like oh they're gonna open that up and say who do we got here (laughs) so i said to my wife this morning i'm like what should i wear you you know if i wear a tie and a coat you know that might that might look kind of funny for some folks and um I forgot to call Steve this last week to say, okay, hey, you know, how casual? Can I wear my, my ripped up jeans um, and unfold my, or untuck my shirt? I forgot. And so um, well, I throw my best pair of jeans and a nice collared shirt, and we're ready to rock and roll here this morning. Leonard Skinner, you've just dated yourself, man. <laughs> They're playing up at Clear Lake later on this. Uh, those guys are still living. Can you believe that? So are you. So am I. It's one of my favorite bands as well, so uh, that was kind of cool. A little guitar piece there. I didn't, I didn't pick it up, so you had some kind of prophetic word at that moment, so that, that was awesome. Well, if you will, take your Bible. As you heard, uh, my name is Rick Carboneau. Charboneau was the old way to pronounce it when I had an H in my name centuries ago. Uh, it is Carboneau. We've been in the uh, Bay Area for 10, uh, almost 11 years now, married to a wonderful woman. Life and marriage gets better and better every year. We were just talking about that the other night. Four kids who are radically involved in, in sports. They love the Lord, serving the Lord. And uh, our church has gone through a, a major transition uh, into what is called missional theology, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, spirit-driven theology. I, I come from a very traditional uh, background, uh, in a lot of ways fundamental background, and God has allowed me to rediscover the gospel and rediscover the mission of the church, that it's more than just theology and preaching just uh, wonderful, great expository messages, but that the message that he is, to, that I am called to preach, that he gives us, is a message that is to transform lives. And you would think that, oh, that's just simple, but that is a transition, that is a renewal and awakening that has happened in our church. So uh, that is who we are. We joined Acts 29 about four months ago, and I met Steve uh, about two years ago, then we reconnected um, about six months ago when he heard that I was coming into Acts 29, and we've been in contact. We um, have seen each other, had breakfast a, a few months ago, and he has graciously asked me to open the Word this morning, which I am more than thrilled to do for you. We are going through a series in our church this summer called um, Still Deadly. It's a series on the seven deadly sins. And uh, we started out in, in June. This was the first message I'll be giving this morning um, that we did in our series back in June. And this is really the foundation for our series on, on the seven deadly sins, how sin today is still deadly. 
We're going to look at that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And so if you have your Bible, um, or if you don't have one, the guys will get you one. I think they're already passing those out. And we also have the scriptures up on PowerPoint for you. So I will read, and then I will get into the text. Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the word of God. Join me as we pray. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit, to help us. We ask, Lord, that you would grant to us the moving of your Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds, that he would take what is spoken here in this passage into the very recesses in the core of our being so that we would not just simply have intellectual knowledge but heart knowledge that transforms lives. God, as the gospel is preached, May it grant renewal, affirmation, encouragement, joy. And Lord, may no soul in here this morning be overwhelmed by the first part. But the first part would set up the second part. As the first part prepares us to hear the gospel. Because the gospel is good news that we've been saved from what we once were. So, Lord, it's good to look back and it's good for us to understand what we were and even at times what we are and what we will be in Jesus Christ and in many ways what we are in Jesus Christ now. Bless us, pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last night when I was looking online, I saw that you've been going through a series on uh, prayer. And uh, I have not unpacked all my boxes in our move to the church. It's been four or five months since we've moved. So I thought, you know what, it's probably best to just uh, get a sermon that I've done as of late. But then I was thinking, okay, how does this correlate and relate to prayer as you're going through the different aspects, the different elements of prayer? And really when you look at it, when you see this passage here, I was thinking about that this morning. I think the Lord gave me this. The fact that prayer is a privilege. Prayer is an incredible privilege. Think about it. What did this passage just say about us? Or if you're here this morning and you're just investigating Christianity, this is really actually talking about your state. Dead. Set apart from God. Accursed, if you will. Children of wrath. Some of the descriptions that it gives us here. Formerly walked according to the course of this world. And God beckons us to pray to live in a fellowship and a life with Him. I don't think we understand prayer until we understand the gospel. 
And so I think this is a good connection, maybe indirect connection, but a good connection to what you are going through in your series this summer. Today, the old understanding of the religious view of sin has fallen on hardened times. There's some good misunderstandings, there's some bad misunderstandings. There was a day when society understood what sin meant and was actually scared of it. Sin was actually understood as not just things that we did that were bad, but sin is destructive to our humanness. It dehumanizes us. It makes us something other than we really were created and designed to be. It's a pathology that comes in and destroys humanness. But today, things have changed. We actually mock the idea of sin I mean, just look at the, indus, the, the music industry. I'm not picking on the, the music industry. There's an old group called the Pet Shop Boys, and they have a song that is called it, it, It's a Sin. And they just mock sin all the way through. No big deal. And even Bon Jovi, one of my favorite, I love him, uh, Living in Sin, as if sin was really no big deal. It's just something that's connected to us and we got to just, uh, you know, don't fight it, just welcome it. It's just going to take its course in our lives. Today, when you ask the question, what is wrong with us? Rarely will the answer be, what's wrong with us is me. What's wrong with us is my sin. Why is this so important? Peter actually puts it like this in 1 Peter 2.11, and he says, Our sinful desires which wage war against the soul. And that word there, soul, actually refers to all of us and who we are. It's our inner being. It actually wages war. It says, Peter does, that there is a war going on in our lives. That is what's wrong with us. That is why we have all the pathologies. That's why we are broken. That's why if you've come here this morning and, and you're down and discouraged, there's sin waging war in your soul. Maybe you're discouraged because you don't understand the, the immensity of the gospel and who you are as a son or as a daughter to the living king. Sang so many songs this morning, and thanks, guys, for, for picking those songs that just center on the cross and Jesus and, and, and God and His holiness, and that's what we're becoming. But we have this war that still goes on inside of us. One writer puts it like this. He says, what seems on the surface to be innocent pleasures, talking about sin here, he says, what seems on the surface to be innocent pleasures or even the promise of an experience that makes life worth living, in reality, in reality, sin slowly tears us apart, end quote. So Paul here, in Ephesians, is describing our humanness and our human condition of why there is evil and brokenness in the world and what overcomes it. And this really makes a huge difference in how you and I view life and how we will always view life. Until you understand your human condition, you will not understand life. Until, you understand our, until we understand our human condition, we're not going to understand Jesus and we're not going to understand why He came and we're not going to understand His death. We're not going to understand His resurrection. We're not going to understand what He's done in our lives. I remember as a young man studying the Bible when it hit me. 
when I finally came to the awareness, and I was a religious kid and religious teenager, I was still radically in the world though, but still religious, still trying to be good. I'm not talking about religion in a good way. When it finally hit me, I'm really messed up. I'm really messed up. You see, before that moment, I, I saw God as a stingy schoolmaster with rules and regulations over my head. And that's how I saw religion. Church was about rules. Just get the rules down. Know the rules. If you're really good, you'll memorize the rules. You have your little memory cards. I'm not picking on memorization. You know, and then when you feel the temptation to sin, pick out one of those things as like some uh, uh, ancient religion mantra and just quote the verse and then abracadabra poof, you won't have the temptation anymore. And that's how I saw religion. Certainly God loved me. I knew that I was a sinner. I wasn't perfect, but there was still a sense of goodness in me that I was still holding on to. It wasn't until I came to the awareness, a deep awareness of these verses here that my view of God and His love and His grace began to take root in my life. If this is true, what Paul says here, and if there's still some remnants for followers of Christ from these verses, then what Paul says here, number one, really means I have no chance to be free. I have no chance to experience God's love. And secondly, if this is true, the only thing that can free me is God doing something in me to release me. And so Paul says, the message of Jesus is not be good, try hard, get religious. The message that what Paul is saying here is no, You are, you were spiritually dead. There is no hope outside of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is four things I want us to see here. Four things about the human condition of our brokenness and what God has done. Number one, first thing that I want us to see, the reason there is evil and brokenness in the world. And I want to start off in verse three. The reason there is brokenness and evil in the world. Look what Paul says in verse three. He says, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says there was a certain condition about us as human beings, and if we're not a follower of Jesus today and has not freed us, this is our state. It's always good to look back at times and see who we were to be able to push forward and to say, okay, this is what Christ has done. We live in a broken world. Every day news events become the commentary of how bad people can be. And some of us don't even like to read the newspaper because it's so discouraging. No, Paul doesn't describe and define our human condition as a list of broken rules. Notice that. He doesn't give us a list of broken rules when he talks about our human conditions. In other words, he doesn't say sin is murder, sin is lying, sin is sexual deviancy, or doing bad things. If I ask the question this morning, 
What is sin? I would bet you most of us would say something like breaking one of the Ten Commandments. I bet you we would say that. Now, if that is true, if sin is breaking rules, then you can easily just set that, push that aside by saying, well, then whose rules? Because Muhammad has certain rules. Confucius has certain rules. Buddha has certain rules. And Jesus is just another run of good religious, moral, ethical teachers bringing his own set of rules. And then we would say, well, it's God's rules. So if sin is just breaking rules, if that's what it's all about, then you can easily push that aside by saying that there is no God, therefore the majority sets the rules in society. And if that is true, what if you're in the minority and you don't like the rules that the majority sets? If sin is simply breaking the rules, who makes the rules? There's got to be a better answer. And the Bible has a different view. Sin is not outside in rules and religious regulations and laws. There is a deeper issue, Paul says here in verse 3. Sin is inside. It's a condition. It's a power. It's a cancer. It's a human defect inside. It's an enemy within. Now let's unravel this and unpack it a little bit more. Literally, and I'll give you the theological term of sin. Sin is... You've heard this before. Missing the mark. It's like shooting arrows. And, and there's not like different circles. And if you get inside of some of those circles, you get points. No, there's only one small little dot on that target. And that's all there is. And it's missing it every single time. That is the definition of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he gives a definition of sin as falling short of the glory of God. It's like that illustration again of shooting arrows and that, that board is a mile away and you're trying to shoot that arrow. You pull it back as far as you possibly can without the thing breaking the bow. I mean, you pull, you're pulling it back and, you, and, and it only goes maybe 100 feet and it just keeps falling. And you can sit there all day, you'll never hit the mark. You've fallen short of the target. And again, that's a theological definition of sin. In other words, what Paul is saying, what sin truly is, is an inability to perform to God's standard. I coach Little League Baseball. It's one of the ways that I endeavor to get into the community and to meet my neighbors and to build friends with those who are not followers of Jesus, to, to not only speak the gospel, but to display the gospel as if Jesus was a Little League coach. That's the way I want people to see me. I don't necessarily say that. And some of my baseball friends have nicknamed me Buffalo Rick. You know why? Because it's like the Buffalo Bills. For the last three seasons, I got up all the way to the semifinals. And we lost in the semifinals for three years in a row. And one of my coaches names me Buffalo Rick because the Buffalo Bills could never get into the Super Bowl. 
<laughs> they always got so far. They, they, they have the inability to make it there. I, 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 can't, I can't make it there. And I think the, thing, the, the, the same thing's going to happen next year. I won't tell my kids that, but that's what these other guys are thinking. It's an, it, unable to perform. Now, while the Bible says that sin has worked its way into our behavior, the place it starts is in the heart. Look what Paul says in verse 3. He says that we live in the lusts of our flesh. Now, typically when we hear that, we, we have the connotations of sexual sin. When Paul uses the word lust, he is talking about an inordinate desire for something that is good. He says, we lived in the lust of our flesh. The word there, flesh, means any, any kind of life that is apart from God. And so, we live for the desires of the flesh. The desires of anything outside of God that is good and right. We have these desires working inside of us. And then he says, not only the desires of the flesh, he, he, he unpacks it a little bit more. He says, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So he's talking about values. He's talking about things that, that are deep down inside of us, that drive us, that motivate us to pursue things way too much apart from God. Here's the picture here, indulging. You can see someone at a banquet meal is so hungry, they're just raw all over it to just take it in. And Paul's saying that's the propensity of the heart, both of the flesh and of the mind. We actually think of things of how to get what we actually want. Paul says that our sin starts on the inside with desires. Again, we desire something way too much. For example, I want security. So I become a control freak and I drive everybody crazy around me because it's got to be my way. Now, is security bad? Is it wrong to desire security? No. But we lust for it and we want it and we've got to have it. Or, or I want popularity. I mean, all of us want others to like us. That's not a bad thing. But when we want it too much, the Bible calls it the fear of man, and it drives us to do things that we know do not please God, but we want to be popular and accepted and approved in the eyes of others. See, that's where Paul's talking about lusts. He's talking about desires. We want things way too much. We want love. That's a good thing, but it becomes a domination in our life. I want to be on top. I want status. I want to drive the car. I want to wear the right clothes. I want people to approve of me. This condition has been with the human race from the beginning. It has not evolved because of a bad environment. It hasn't evolved because of a low self-esteem. Those will lead to it. A bad environment will, 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 will cause us to go after the things that our hearts desire because, as we'll see in a moment in, chapter, in, in verse 2, the world system drives us towards that. But it's not the reason for it. Genesis 
6.5, very early in human history, it was written. And look what Moses says about our human condition. He says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So this, this condition was great, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I, when I first read that and it hit me, I'm like, oh my gosh, everything I do, everything I think, every intention, every motivation of my heart is askew. It goes askew. There is nothing that I can do that is good, that is right, that will ever please God. This is why, folks, religion kills Religion based on rules and regulations so that I can appease God and bring to Him a righteousness of my own kills. That's why Christianity, that's why He killed Jesus because He came into His environment destroying religion. John 17, I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We certainly can't. But we'll see in verse 4, but God. The only remedy for this condition. Jesus stated in Mark 7, He says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murder, adulteries, deeds of coveting and of wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. And Christians are no different. We still battle with all of these things. We have not become perfect yet. We're in the process of overcoming and learning how to desire the things that the Lord, and not only learning, but the Spirit of God is moving us in that direction. So the reason for evil is because inside we're really messed up. Paul also tells us where sin enters. So second point that Paul shows us in this verse is, or these verses, is the origin of evil and brokenness in the world. Look at, look at the second half of, of B, I mean of 3, 3B. He says, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We're by nature children of wrath. Are you saying that, is he talking about God's wrath there? Yes, he is. The eternal wrath, yes, he is, but... This word wrath can also overflow. It has a wider context and a wider meaning to, to, to mean the, the, the judgment of God. In other words, he, just, he let us go our own way into destruction. You see, if I let my kids do whatever they want to do, eat whatever they want, go to bed whenever they want, not go to school if they didn't want. Some of you kids are probably saying, that's pretty cool, do that, yeah, no. If I, if I allowed my kids to do whatever, say whatever, dress whatever way they want, go out with whatever who they wanted to, and just let them go their own way, that wouldn't be love. If I let them play in the street, if I let them take drugs, get drunk, or whatever else, that wouldn't be love if I did not teach and train and restrain them from where their little evil hearts would want to go. That would be Judgment. So when he talks about, and we're about children of wrath, 
He's talking here about the fact that we were born without parents. We were born without a father. We were born without anybody overlooking us. So yeah, we had human parents, but we're talking in a greater context and in a greater way that God just allowed us to go our own way and we were born into this state. Where did this all come from? Unfortunately, today we are told that our condition is caused by learned behavior or a lack of self-esteem or a bad environment. Where does Paul say it comes from? He says, by nature. The psalmist describes it in, in Psalm 51. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Paul's not, I mean, the psalmist is not saying, David actually who wrote this is not saying that my mom was sinning when she conceived me. He's saying, no, I was in this condition from the very moment of my conception. Psalm 58.3, the ungodly are estranged. Those who do not know God are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. See, that's, that's, that's why I think we have to understand the fact, and again, connecting that to prayer. And God wants to hear us. At one point, we were separated, alienated from, from the, the God of the universe. We were actually born into that, and He just let us go our own way. Sin is not out there. It's in here. Now, if you've ever done studies in psychology, studying people with bizarre behavioral traits, you soon realize that something, just bizarre, you know, whatever they're battling with, you soon realize something is wrong. And that is a good illustration of the human state of sin compared to how we ought to be. Something is wrong. And guess what? Jesus came not to teach a better way to live. In other words, he didn't, he's, he's not just a good, moral, ethical leader. Jesus came with a de- declaration of freedom. And that's why he said, the truth shall set you free. The truth of who I am. Not, not just the truth of a bunch of theological facts disconnected from me. All truth is connected to me and who I am and my death, burial, and resurrection. And the truth will set you free. He came with that declaration of freedom. Freedom, not perfection. But for the first time in my life, I can beat this. I can, I can, I can finally be a human being. If we don't accept this, and what Paul is saying here, then it's extremely difficult to understand Christianity. As I mentioned already, I, I grew up in religion with a mindset that I needed to be good, to do good, to be moral, and to follow all the rules. I spent most of my days with that kind of mentality. Paul shares... Not only what's wrong with this, but he shares the origin of evil and brokenness. But he also talks about the description of evil and brokenness. Back to verse 2. He says, In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul describes evil and brokenness in verse 2. He says, You formerly walked, What's he saying here? 
in this verse. Let me illustrate it and then explain it. Miracle grow. I, 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 I'm, I'm a green figure. I like growing things. I'm always in the outside. And uh, I tend to over-fertilize, over-water because I want things to grow fast. So I found this stuff called miracle Grow. If you know anything about miracle Grow, it's pretty good stuff. It's a great fertilizer. But miracle Grow won't grow anything unless there's a seed already there. Okay? There are external influences that cause this seed of sin that we were all born into inside of us to grow. Here Paul says, you walk according to the course of this world. Walk is a metaphor for living. When you drive on a course, if you go and you have to take your, your, um, your test, your driving test, and you go on a course, he, he takes you to a course, he directs you, you have to go around cones, you gotta take a left, you gotta take a right, there's already a course that is set, set up. You are directed to drive the way that the course wants you to drive. Paul says our hearts naturally follow a course. You say, well, what is this course? This course is cultural values. What we believe will make us happy. What we believe will give us what we desire and want. Jesus came into a very religious culture that valued external morality built on rules and religious traditions. And these values ruled how people acted towards one another. A critical self-righteousness, a morality, judging everybody through religion. In our culture, we have cultural values that are just as religious as in Jesus' day, but they don't take the name of religion. Status. The amount of money, the house we live in, the car that we drive, the job that we have, the way that we look, underweight, overweight, whatever, clothes that we wear. And Paul's saying these values become our idols and our gods that drive us, that we constantly keep feeding us to pursue the seed, to the, the miracle grow of the seed that's already in there driving us. Our culture values power. Show no weakness. We lust, we lust for power, for control, significance, status, so we'll cheat. Intellectualism, so, we, so now we look smart. Athletics, so look what I can do. Materialism, look what I have. And we measure each other against these values. They drive what we think about. They drive what we deem is important. They drive what we give our life to. We've got to be safe. We've got to be happy. We've got to be loved. Even our kids have got to perform for us. So we look as if we are good parents. Oh, my kids got into this school or that school. Oh, they are this. They're in this major. Oh, they're going to be uh, this profession someday. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is a spiritual force that drives this as well. It's a spiritual force that's behind. Paul says like Jesus, as he came into his culture and he lived by a different ethic and he lived by a different value. Paul says like Jesus, a Christian walks according to a different course. A course that follows love as the motivation of all that you do. A course that values forgiveness and honesty 
Love the authenticity that I heard here this morning. That's a Jesus-driven authenticity. The humility, a course where money is not the end of all life, but it is to be used to serve others. A course of service, loving the outcasts, as you did in the community yesterday. Not tearing people down with the tongue, healing the sick, dealing with poverty, interracial relationships, where women and sexual acts are not sold, where the nations work together for the good of humanity. That's Jesus' values. Not the values of society around us. These are not human achievements, though, but they are examples of what God creates. As he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. It is God's love not religious duty that motivates what we do. It is His love in us which becomes the miracle grow in our hearts as He plants the seed of new life and He becomes the roundup, the weed killer, if you will, of the sin that is inside. One last thing I want us to see and then we're going to move to verse 4. The deception of this evil. Paul says in verse 1 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were alienated. You were separated from God. You were born into a state, and so was I, born into a state of God's judgment. In other words, where he just let us go. Say, what is death? We know what death is. It's certainly not life. This death here is the distortion of life. It distorts everything that is good about God, everything that he has made. That's why we turn something that is so good like sex into a perversion. We turn food into a perversion. We turn cards and material things. We turn money into something as a God that we think that we need to give us security. And so we turn to our little idols and we say, feed me, I worship you, I give my life to you. Everything we touch, we distort. That is death, my friends. It's like a virus which gets into everything. Death taints everything. And this state of our humanness is so extremely hard for us to see, let alone acknowledge about ourselves. And the reason why it's so hard for us to see is because it's always been like this. It's always been this way. We have no way to tell what life would be like without this evil within us. And this evil and brokenness in our world seems so stinking normal. We don't like it. We know that it shouldn't be there. We know that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. But it seems so normal. Someone has said, to err is human. How many of us, don't raise your hands, how many of us believe that or used to believe that? No, that is not true. That is like saying to have cancer is human. It's not normal. And we got to stop believing that evil is normal because it's not. It's a pathology. It's something that distorts us. And there should, there should be a sense of righteous indignation in us saying that is not right. 
That is not the way we treat. Ah, the other day, uh, I get crazy sometimes. The other day I'm studying and I hear this in the middle of my street. And this woman yelling. I'm like, what's going on? And I looked out my window. And I saw this husband, you can tell he was just so angry and they got into a fight and he got out of the car and he's walking down the street and he's walking back and forth. So she's putting it in reverse, putting it in drive, putting it in reverse, trying and they're yelling back and forth and I look in the back seat and there's a three-year-old kid watching this between mommy and daddy. And it just hit me. That's not right. That is not right. So I went downstairs and all I wanted to do was just go to the husband and just say, hey, it's not that bad. It's okay. It's okay. You know what? She's going to get into an accident. You've got a three-year-old kid in the backyard. For her sake, don't do this. We, we, we've got to come to the... This is not right. But look what Paul says in verse 4. But God. Yeah, that's our state. And we went on long with that, but let's end with this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. But God, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That even though we were alienated and God let us go our own ways and we lived according to our own feelings and emotions and fears and drives and motivations. But God stepped in and he said, no more. No more. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to do something about your brokenness and your evil. And when I redeem you, you are going to be an instrument of redemption for the world. But God, being rich, what do we do with our wealth? We spend it on our pleasures. But God, being rich in all of his wealth, in mercy. What he's saying there is you don't deserve anything but hell. Neither do I. But we get God being rich in mercy. Why? Because of his great love. That's the what. Because of his great love. I remember as a teenager, age of 17, smoking pot with my friends. One of my friends saw me heard that I went to a Young Life meeting the week before, and he starts laughing. And I was so fearful. I'm like, oh, I just went for the girls. Ah, oh, yeah, those Jesus freaks. Oh, that's not why I went. I actually was searching for Jesus because I knew there was something more. Oh, I 
don't want that Jesus freak. I don't want, he's a freak. He's, and I remember betraying Jesus to all my friends when I was high. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he loved us. How? Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we are separated. Even when we are blowing out our minds. Even when we are living in righteous, our own righteous religion. In our goodness. Because our righteousness kills as much as our sin. Because righteousness, self-righteousness is sin. Because we set and we use righteousness to keep us from God. What did he do? Made us alive together with Jesus. That's why, my friends, it's always about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. And it always will be about Jesus. When you're discouraged and you're depressed, hey, you know what? You may not have the world's goods and you may not have the the kind of happiness that this life might bring you. But you know what? You'll always have Jesus because you're with him and you're in him and you're indissolvably linked and unified with him together with Christ. For by grace, receiving something that you don't deserve. You have been saved. It is not your goodness, not my goodness. It's not your religion, it's not my religion. It's nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ seen on the cross, and not only his, through his death, but his life, that you've been raised, united with him. You see, it was the death of death in the death of Jesus. And it is his death that you and I find life. God makes a life. And you know what the problem with us is? Our problems all stem from the fact that we don't believe this. We don't believe this. That we are a life. So if your life limps, if your marriage limps along, if you live unfulfilled, if you live unsatisfied, because you have not found life, and death is the norm, it's because we don't believe that we are alive in Jesus. Nothing can touch us. Not the loss of a job, the hurting marriage, the wayward kid, the lacking bank account acceptance status and even our own sin we're alive in Jesus Jesus came to make a difference so that you and I would make a difference let's pray I must confess, Lord, that I don't believe this like I should.
That's why many days I wake up unhappy. Because I don't feel like the church is doing as good as it should be doing or my marriage is not doing as good as it should be doing or my kids aren't as good as they should be or I'm not as faithful witness as I should be or I still struggle and battle with temptation. Lord, I don't understand. Even my own brokenness at times. But I do know one thing. You made me alive. Help me to believe that. Help us to believe that, Lord. To live centered on the gospel as the motivation of all that we are. Because it's not about us, it's about Jesus and about what he has done. For Father, may you heal our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit so that the Spirit would beat this down into our hearts, that we would feel it, that we would feel your love, not just on Sunday mornings when we're singing or hearing a prophetic word or someone encouraging us, but that every moment of every single day the Spirit would be energizing the gospel in our hearts so that we would believe who we are in Jesus. And that if life gives us its worst, we know one thing, we'll never lose Jesus. For He is our Messiah, our Savior. Give us a greater love for Him and a devotion to Him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.